welcome to episode 40 of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Isabel avakumovich Poynton, and I will be your guest host for this episode. I'm an MA student at the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto, where I research gender and disability in the Balkans at the turn of the century. Through my own research, I've noticed that historians of disability don't often engage with Eastern Europe, and that likewise, historians of Eastern Europe don't often engage with disability. To breach the gap, this episode will discuss the historiography, current trends, and major topics in the history of disability in Eastern Europe. Throughout the episode, you'll hear from four scholars who are currently working in the field, Maria Bucur, Francis Bernstein, Maria Cristina Galmarini, and Magdalena Strodowska. Before we dive into the history of disability in Eastern Europe, we first need to explain what we mean by Eastern Europe. I use the term broadly to include the countries of the former Soviet Union, as well as those in East Central and Southeastern Europe. So this region includes countries like the Czech Republic, Russia, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Slovakia, Serbia, anything in that area. This region has a very different history from Western Europe. In the 19th century, it was split between three competing empires, the Russian, Habsburg, and Ottoman empires, which left a profound impact on the region. In the 20th century, many of the countries in Eastern Europe experienced some form of state socialism under the influence of the Soviet Union. With the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the USSR in the 1990s, this region underwent profound social, economic, and political changes. All of this means that the history of disability in Eastern Europe is likely to be significantly different from the history of disability in Western Europe or North America. To help us get a sense of disability history in the context of Eastern Europe, I decided to reach out to scholars who are currently working in the field. I was lucky enough to get to interview four of them, and as is the tradition with the DHA podcast, I started each interview by asking the scholars what brought them to disability history. My first guest was Maria Bukur, who is Professor of Gender Studies and History at Indiana University in the United States of America. She's written extensively about the experiences of disabled people in interwar Romania. Here's how she first got involved with disability history. I'm a latecomer to disability history. I've been, you know, involved in historical research since the 90s. And I only um, became really interested in it um, in the last, I would say, five years or so. I come from Bucharest, um, so I lived there uh, between 1968 and 1985, um, and I wasn't really interested in history. I'm a violinist. Um, I was interested in music. I, I'm still interested in music. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, but um, when we left, my dad defected in the 80s. Things were really bad on the Ceausescu. Um, he saw an opportunity to to get out of the country and he was able to get a visa for the rest of us. And so, lo and behold, back then you could apply for a visa at the American government if you were lucky, privileged. I think it's privilege has a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, being educated and white, definitely big privileges. Um, we're able to come to this country. So initially I had, you know, honestly, I grew up with historical research and analysis being something that was really not very interesting. It was very much within the mold of, you know, kind of 
top-down Marxist analysis without much discussion of like human agency and and women missing entirely from the picture. Nothing yeah. shocking about that one. Because we're talking 1985, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so um I slowly got interested in how nationalism um, functioned because of ways in which I recognized nationalism as being part of my own perspective um, that I was not thinking about critically enough. And then the revolutions happened and I happened to be in Romania in 1989 during the events. Um, and all that kind of gave me a sense of the power of history and the power of kind of average people having incredible because you know because the story in Romania is so is so dramatic in terms of kind of how the government was toppled and what street protest ended up actually generating right yeah. um, and so I decided that I wanted to go to grad school in history just like boom like that um, and then because it was you know the moment when I went to grad school you know I started in 1991 and this is just about the time that on the one hand um, gender analysis was becoming like a, a really important framework for doing historical research um, you know Joan Scott's famous article had come out in 1986 but we were like studying it at the time right yeah. and um, looking into it and realizing oh my god there's like nothing about feminism in eastern not nothing you know and then on top of that, um, Keith Hitchens, who was my beloved uh, advisor, gave me uh, the run of his library. And so, you know, I was doing little notes for him, like, you know, in your collection, there is this and, that, you know, kind of summaries of what he had, because he had tens of thousands of books, and, you know, and, and primary sources. I discovered this bulletin for eugenics and biopolitics, and it was like, oh, who knew? Yeah. This was a big thing, you know, and so from that, I kind of, um, I initially wanted to do a dissertation on feminism in the interwar period. The sources are um, really hard to, to find, to be honest, even, even now, they're like all over the place and kind of hard to parse together, although important work and really incredibly good, like research has been done uh, by a number of uh, younger scholars. Um, but eugenics was, you know, right up there and gender was all over it. Um, and I was really interested in it. And that's how kind of how I, I came to it. And that's why this connection with Romania, because Keith Hitchens had worked in Romania and a lot of his materials were from Romania. So it ended up being something that was really kind of perfect. And I was interested in obviously understanding my own country's past. And um, I've never been somebody who wants to do history just for the sake of history. I'm really interested in making it relevant for people that live in a place on the ground. And to me, it makes more sense to try to do advocacy for a place where you have experience and where you can speak to the community that you want to support not just as an ally but as a member of that community you know and yeah. so that's that's kind of how I got to that <laughs> my second guest was Frances Bernstein who's an associate professor of history at Drew University in New Jersey in the USA she's written about people with physical and sensory disabilities in the Soviet Union in the mid-20th century here's her journey to becoming a disability historian so how I came to disability studies, that story starts in high school. <laughs> um, when I was in high school, I 
I had the great fortune of taking a class in Russian literature and decided that I was going to be uh, a complete major in college and was going to start learning Russian in college. I started doing that. I finished, I was fluent with Spanish. So as a sophomore, I enrolled in an intensive Russian language course. And the second I started in the course, I knew that this is this was going to be my field. I just fell in love with the language. I mean, people who studied the Russian language, either they love it or they hate it. And you don't see anybody really wishy-washy about being committed to studying the language. I loved it. I had an unbelievably dynamic teacher, which I think made a big difference as well. So I started studying Russian as a sophomore at college and immediately dropped all plans of being a complete major. I wanted to be a Russian studies major, which I was. Um, I was also very uh, uh, involved politically and also academically in uh, gender and women's in feminist issues. Um, and so by the time I was a senior, uh, I did a lot of both and decided as a senior to write an honors thesis on the underground feminist movement in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, um, which did become the subject of my uh, of my senior honors thesis. That got me thinking about when I was working about on that, I already decided I was going to get a PhD in, I wasn't sure if it was going to be history or not. I knew that I wanted to professionally, I wanted to study Russian women and sexuality. And that was what I was going to be doing. Um, while I was doing the reading for my senior thesis, I started reading all of the other underground publications that were coming out at the same time in the Soviet Union, the, the, the you know, the burgeoning human rights movement in the Soviet Union. So in addition, and one of the, 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 most important publications was the Chronicle of Current Events, um, which covered all dissident dissident groups. One of the groups it covered was this brand new developing uh, disability rights movements. Yeah, um, and so and so I started reading stuff about that, and decided at that point that that would be my second book. Right, I wasn't wow. quite sure what the first one could be. It was something about women and gender, but. Disabled Veterans at the End of World War II was going to be my second book. So that's always been the plan, always. Um, and, you know, then I put it on the back burner for the next 20 years or however long it took me to, to get a PhD. I got to the shape of my dissertation project the way it, it was, was that I wanted to write about prostitutes. <laughs> that was my master's thesis at Columbia. And of course, as you know, prostitutes mostly don't leave sources. They're busy, right? And so the only way to get at the issue was to look at the people charged with regulating them and taking care of them. And those were the doctors. So that's how I became a historian of medicine. It was through kind of, you know, through the back door, really, into yeah. studying sexuality. And then as I discovered, you know, the doctors were the ones who designed the revolutionary sex sexuality that was going to go along with the Russian Revolution. Right. They were the ones who took control of this discipline of this area. So that's that was the basis for my book. So at the time that was already in press and being edited and all that stuff, I started to, to think about my second project. And that was going to be a project on um, disabled war veterans. My next guest was Maria Cristina Galmarini, who's an associate professor of history and global studies at William and Mary University in Virginia, USA. 
She also works on disability history in the Soviet Union, with a particular emphasis on blind activism. Uh, yes, so my first book uh, was about social rights for marginalized populations uh, uh, during Stalinism, so in the post-revolutionary and Stalinist period of Soviet history. Um, I didn't get into that project uh, with uh, a specific interest uh, in disability, in disability history. Uh, but as I was trying to find entry points into the question of uh, who has the right to receive uh, uh, the help of the state, the care of the state, uh, you know, as uh, uh, as Soviet uh, rhetoric uh, would claim, uh, the Soviet state uh, uh, cares for everybody and social rights were a major um, a major uh, achievement uh, of uh, uh, the, the evolution according to this rhetoric, uh, I needed to understand how non-model citizens understood their rights and if they received, uh, if their rights were actually um, granted to them um, according to the constitution, according to the propaganda, the rhetoric or not. So I looked uh, for marginalized groups. That was what I had in mind. And I identified uh, so-called defective children, mm. and marginalized uh, population, children that deviate, uh, using a Russian term of the time, deviate from the norm. Mm -hmm. I discovered that single mothers were also a deviation from gender norms. Um, and then I discovered there were two societies, uh, one called the All Russian Society of the Deaf and the other, the All Russian Society of the Blind. Mm -hmm. And these groups also were deviating uh, citizens according to uh, Soviet uh, norms. So I, uh, I became very interested uh, in uh, issues of uh, uh, disability from the perspective of uh, uh, so-called abnormality, so-called mm -hmm deviation from a standard from a model of subjectivity uh, or citizenship mm -hmm. that's how i got interested in it my last guest was magdalena strolovska who's an assistant professor at the institute of audiovisual arts at jagiellonian university in krakow poland her research focuses on the intertwined history of deafness deaf culture and technology well um from my first training, I'm an anthropologist and my second degree is in film studies, in media and film studies. And uh, I was uh, writing my dissertation, my PhD on um, uh, television programs for and by minorities in Poland, minority communities. And I was doing field research uh, with Belarusians and Lithuanians and Ukrainians living in Poland. They, Back that uh, time they had, it was like, oh, more than 10 years ago, um, they had their own uh, television programs. They were preparing their own television programs for their communities. So I was like, uh, on one hand, I was doing anthropology, uh, research, anthropological research with them. And at the same time, like more media studies mm -hmm. um, research uh, at the same time, I was combining this. And when I uh, graduated and I was looking for some new uh, topics, um, I came across, I just met um, uh, another PhD uh, colleague he is a deaf person and he, we were just supporting each other in this like 
difficult path of PhD student. Yeah. Um, online, there was like um, a support group and uh, we became friends. And uh, he told me a lot about deaf culture with capital D. And I was not aware of that before. And he told me that he identifies himself as a member of ethnic minority. And for me, uh, who was doing research on ethnic minorities, it was quite um, surprising and intriguing. And that was my entry point to deaf uh, culture, um, or rather to, uh, to research on deaf uh, community in Poland. And um, I, was, uh, I got a job in Institute um, of audiovisual arts um so i was like continuing with my um, like my professional path with media studies so um i came with the idea of investigating how deaf community and deaf individuals use uh, social media that were like entering polish media sphere with a, a huge success mm. um, facebook was translated into polish back that time so uh, it was really it was really getting a momentum and um, deaf community uh, communities were using forums uh, like like the thing before social media but they were yeah. entering social media as well and at the same time they were networking and organize self-organizing protests against polish association of the deaf and they were using uh, social media very extensively so it was really amazing time for me as a researcher mm. uh, to like grab try, try to grasp both of those topics uh, deaf culture this very powerful uh, based on opposition on protest deaf culture and social media that they were using so extensively so basically um i was uh, interested in how deaf people use social media or like internet in general in poland um but very soon i realized that it is very limiting uh topic and the more i was like diving into this uh generally this topic of how excluded groups use media Mm, I uh, I started to uh, widen my topic um, and uh, my main research for the last 10 years uh, was on deafness and disability and technology in general. And I have published a book two years ago um, on deafness and technology. So it, it, it was a long, long way. Uh, but basically, through ethnic minorities, through deaf culture, I uh, got to disability in more general sense. Later on in the episode, we'll get to hear about the projects that these scholars have been working on. But I want to start by sharing their impressions of how the field of disability history in Eastern Europe has changed over the last several decades and where it is now. Here's Professor Galmarini's description of how the field has evolved since the early 1990s. So in the 90s, uh, right after the um, ADA was issued, right, and there was the social model of disability that really was gaining momentum across the world, we also have the fall of communism. And suddenly a model that uh, in the past had inspired many was completely delegitimized and dismissed. And the history of that model was erased both by domestic actors and by foreign actors as well. 
of course, on one on one end, there was the opening of the archives. However, uh, in the 1990s, when the archives suddenly opened and there was accessibility of travel, um, the questions related to disability history were not really at the center of scholarly attention. So what scholars were, uh, you know, looking at was, you know, they were looking at questions of political history, social history very much. Uh, there were all sorts of interesting turns in the historiography of the region, uh, but disability was somehow a latecomer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's something that I think uh, uh, should be should be considered. And then there was uh, the, the delegitimization of what was accessible. So once uh, scholars went into the archives and uh, started noticing there was you know, no Russian organization of the blind, the assumption there was, well, this was a state organization controlled by the Ministry of Social Welfare. Uh, of course, those were apparatchiks. Those were state officers. Uh, and if we want to recover the voices of people with disabilities, this is not where we should look. Mm. Now, this is I'm not saying this is wrong. Uh, of course, right? The story I tell is not the story of ordinary blind people uh, in the socialist world. I tell a story of leaders who were uh, very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, um, high political authorities who were trusted enough to be sent abroad, uh, mm -hmm. who were loyal. So, of course, I'm not, uh, it, it is true that to discover to hear the voices of ordinary citizens. Looking at the archive of the old Russian Society of the Blind is probably not the best place. We should look somewhere else. But the assumption there again, and this is something uh, I've been writing against in this, uh, uh, in this uh, last book I wrote, uh, is that we dismiss a type of activism that doesn't make sense uh, looked from the point of view of uh, let's say post 1990 United States um, it was a medical approach to disability it was uh, an approach that uh, uh, reformed uh, changed trained fixed corrected uh, the disabled uh, whatever term we want to use there um, but this would be an anachronistic approach I say mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's important to look critically at this uh, history uh, instead of dismissing it because the requirements of human rights, the requirements of NGOs of the 1990s onwards are very different yeah. from, from what was uh, the type of uh, advocacy that was uh, practiced, the only type of advocacy that could exist in socialism. It has definitely changed. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, when, when I did my PhD uh, from 2006 to 2012, uh, um, I never encountered a course on disability history, despite the fact that, uh, um, you know, my, my university are very strong at this University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign mm -hmm. had and has a very strong uh, um, history department and history program. Uh, there were courses on uh, history of gender and sexuality. Um, there were courses on all sorts of other, um, you know, social history topics, but I never saw in the catalog a history of disability uh, course, for instance. So that was the time when history of disability was slowly taking shape. Uh, and uh, uh, 
people also in scholars of the region were starting to um, to look at disability. Um, so one fundamental book here is Claire Shaw's book, uh, um, Death in the USSR, uh, which came out uh, in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And that really has opened the eyes of many scholars uh, to how crucial it is uh, to look at uh, um, history of subjectivity in the Soviet Union or issues of identity in the Soviet Union from the perspective of disability. Even before that book, there were books that were on issues of social rights, welfare, um, gender, that looked at so-called invalids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they were not asking disability history questions. There were books about, uh, uh, you know, defectology as a science or the education of children, but the disability, disability studies or disability history angle uh, was not prominent. It was not the frame. It was not a theoretical or analytical frame. So that was a, a really pioneering path-breaking book. Um, and then slowly, uh, more and more scholars uh, started to, you know, PhD students started to be interested in uh, deaf and blind people, in defectology, um, in uh, uh, issues that uh, are, if not uh, um, closely related, if not disability itself, closely related, aging, for instance, right? Aging and disability are uh, important to look to to be considered together for instance so these fields uh, uh, have uh, have slowly started to emerge and right now i would say they are uh, really blooming this brings me to the next question i asked my guests about how they describe the current state of the field and where they thought it was going here's professor bukur's answer i've been reading avidly what people are writing and there's clearly a kind of a, a flourishing of uh, publications on this um, I decided a couple of years ago after I finished my book on, on the veterans um, to try to do more exploration and maybe generate a small network of um, folks to kind of to read together each other's work, the work that's been published and all that stuff. And so my colleagues, um, just because that's who responded, are folks who work on the 20th century. Hmm. Um, my sense is that, first of all, 20th century is where most of the work is right now. There are, in fact, some folks who are doing work in, you know, pre-World War I, um, uh, South Slavs, Poland, um, even Romania, actually, uh, for sure, Imperial Russia. I have a capacious understanding of Eastern Europe. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all good with including Russia <laughs> in, in, in these considerations, um, and uh, and so that 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 was pretty clear when I was kind of looking around. Most recently, I um, I got enough funding to organize a conference in Berlin. Um, Indiana University has a gateway facility in Berlin. And um, a colleague of mine, Sarah Phillips, who has been doing, in fact, work on disability studies in Ukraine, especially in the, the early post-communist periods for the 90s and aughts. Um, she had already organized a conference there and told me that the facilities were really good and they were able to accommodate people with disabilities. So I thought, okay, let's try this. I put out a call for papers that, you know, I didn't make a lot of effort, I'll be honest. To, I was really busy, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I got 38 responses back. Wow. I was hoping for 10. Wow. <laughs> that's, 
That's a lot more. That's than, a lot. Yeah. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, my sense of it, and I was talking to the members of the small network that I've got going, was that like we happen to be standing at the right place at the right time, you know, that like crossroads of, um, and it is um, the people who apply, the majority of them um, are from what I would call post-communist countries. Um, it's primarily Eastern, a lot of Poles, a lot of Romanians, some Czechs, um, some Bulgarians, uh, people calling, working on the DDR, uh, Ukraine, Russia, um, Central Asia, a couple of you know folks doing that. Um, so clearly we hit the moment of like synergy here, right? Um, it is still primarily 20th century and, and primarily folks focusing on the communist period. Um, I think there's the, 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 you know, there's something really, so first of all, there's, there's more data. I mean, I, I think that's a lot of it, right? It's like, if you have that interest, you're more likely to find documentation that can speak about the agency of people with disability. Cause that's one of the big challenges, right? Like who's speaking for whom, right? In the interwar period um, in Eastern Europe, because of the high level of illiteracy, I mean, that's one of the problems I've had in my own career, right? It's like, who is out there writing? Mm -hmm. On the book on veterans, I mean, I was just lucky because some of these folks were literate or somebody else was writing for just a high level of, of illiteracy. So you can see the, you know, the X's at the end, right? So again, uh, kind of hard to pin it to like what every person's doing and organizations are not very, are good about keeping records yeah during the communist period a lot better records plus state efforts to organize education employment legislation so you have a lot more to work with and of course there's the fascinating question that is being explored and i think that's one of the big trends right is is if you look at <clears throat> the kind of you know welfare and medical models that disability history talks about for the 20th century where does this communist block, if you will, I'm just going to call it that for, you know, lack of a better word, fit? Yeah. Um, uh, we had a very interesting conversation. Uh, a book was just launched by a couple of colleagues from Sweden. One of them is actually from Romania and, and works on Romania and, and disability policies there, uh, Radu Haraldinu. We were having a conversation about this book that he and his colleague just published. And the book focuses on kind of comparative looks at European different systems in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they kept using this, you know, welfare versus medical. And I pushed them a little bit because I, I feel like the kind of view of the citizen um, that communist states had, right? The notion of what is a right and obligation it's connection to work, right? And productivism yeah. in a way that is understood very much in connection to you know, Marxist principles about uh, the common good, right? And, and what sort of workers have to put into society for the benefit of everybody through the state and then what obligations the state has towards citizens that way um, is to me a unique way of thinking about productivism um, that doesn't, I mean, there certainly are parallels with um, how capitalism operates, mm -hmm. but there's an inherent critique of capitalism and the productivist ideas about labor under state communism. So um, that, that strikes me as a, as a different kind of 
so I am thinking, and, and I hope that our um, conference in Berlin digs through these questions of whether there's a third, not a third way, but like a third kind of framework to think about disability history in the 20th century, specifically the political framework mm-hmm. of how um, individual capacity and therefore uh, the relationship between the individual and the state in terms of rights and responsibilities is framed in these um, regimes that I, I think are, are um, different because of the high level of state involvement in dictating both education and also kind of productivity, right? Productivity is not about like you make something that's marketable. Productivity is about working eight hours a day, right? Um, as a worker to kind of produce something and that what you produce its value is the labor itself and not the kind of commercial value of it as in capitalism. I see this as being very different. I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm just in my cold war mentality and I can't get out of it, but I, I do think that there's a reality to that um, significant difference. For the interwar period, I, I think it's it's uh, there's some other comparative things that are really worthwhile considering, and and I go back to my veterans stuff, which is, um, honestly, even in the case of Romania, I I you know just scratch the surface of w- what's going on there because to really understand the impact of these types of policies, you, you want to go from locale to locale mm-hmm. and try to see what materials you can collect there to bring to the surface um, the activities of disabled veterans and their families in terms of how this impacted them, right? Mm-hmm. And that I think is something that other people are doing, like there's people working on Bulgaria, there's people working on Poland, on Yugoslavia that I'm aware of, definitely Czechoslovakia, there's been, I mean, so Czechoslovakia is a case study that's been much better articulated than others, right? So you have somebody like Victoria Schmidt, her work um, is really powerful, right? Because it also imbricates um, disability with race and races and, and gender. And that's exactly the direction that I like to see more people take, you know, um, how those things come together and how then you understand, you know, like Czechoslovakia, the celebrated sort of, you know, here's the one that's not like the others in Eastern Europe because you have a lot more of a democratic kind of understanding of citizenship and uh, difference is not, I understood as deviance, but rather just a crafting, you know, mm-hmm. until you hit the Roma uh, example, then it's like, wow, okay, well, um, that was not the Nazis and that was not the communists. Actually, some of that was going on before. And yeah. eugenics, again, seems to be very much connected to how, you know, a kind of a normal citizens are, are understood and, and incorporated, right? Um, so I think that kind of work is is very interesting because it starts to give us pause as to what was happening in the interwar period with regard to experiments with democracy first of all like really just starting to kind of peel some of the onion there um and also back to veterans uh the extent to which the kind of discourse about veterans with disabilities that was happening uh, in places that have more of a policy. I'm thinking the United States, Germany, and France as the main places where the technology and the discourses about um, 
in this sense, physical disability, um, end up being very impactful. Professor Strodowska emphasized that the increasing context between historians of disability in Eastern Europe was a major new development in the field. I have an impression that we are in the like very powerful phase of networking in uh, disability st studies in Eastern Europe. And when I talk to my colleagues from Poland, but also from other um, countries in the region, we very often share the very same um, experience of having the feeling that we are the only ones doing disability research in our countries. And, um, and that is a big uh, work for us to do, to find other uh, colleagues or uh, other researchers who do disability research, cultural uh, disability research, uh, disability history in Poland, in uh, Czech Republic, in Bulgaria. I think it is the same in the whole region. It is uh, definitely true for, for Poland. And um, I was meeting um, other scholars doing research uh, in disability studies um, during conferences abroad. That, that was basically how I, how I was doing uh, the, the networking, uh, because there were not so many platforms uh, in Poland to, to like even know that there are other uh, researchers, not to mention the, the research. Yeah. Um, that they do. So I think the first thing that that we need to do is networking and building platforms uh, to exchange our ex our experiences and our knowledge. Um, because um, and it was also the uh, my experience of attending foreign uh, conferences, conferences abroad at, at outside Poland. Mm -hmm. that I was meeting other uh, scholars, uh, disability studies scholars from the region. And uh, when we were discussing uh, like our research and what is going on in our countries, we realized that what we were, what we were uh, taking for, um, as something very unique for Poland, from Czech Republic, for, uh, for Bulgaria, in relation to United States is not that unique. It is mm -hmm. a very Eastern European thing. And um, for example, I think it was in Leiden that I was presenting about disability uh, protests in Poland that was basically run uh, by the mothers, mm. uh, which was very viciously used in public discourse uh, and this uh, figure of greedy women, greedy mother that is putting out there her poor child to get some money. Mm. Uh, so this uh, image uh, and the, the very fact that the, they were the mothers that were fighting for uh, disability rights, uh, I thought it, it was something like unique for Poland, but at the very same time, as my colleague from uh, Bulgaria told me, there were protests of uh, the mothers of people with disabilities uh, there as well. So um, it really showed me that we need um, more space for discussion and exchange. Um, and relating our research not only to uh, the Anglo-Saxon academic sphere, which is the easiest because of the access of books, of theories, of concepts, mm -hmm. uh, but we need to relate to each other as well. 
because there are very many similarities. Professor Bernstein explained how she, as a Russianist, also recently noticed the many connections and commonalities between different countries in the region. I was somebody who for a very long time would look east in my work, was not really looking to Eastern Europe. I was looking to, you know, the, the large Soviet experience and the borders on the Far East. But one of the wonderful things about getting involved with these with this disability group um, is that so many of them work in Eastern Europe. So I'm coming to learning about that experience later than others, probably, because that was ne that was never my 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 uh, what do you call it? My frame of reference. Um, so I'm really struck by how very similar they are. You know, the 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 Soviet grasp. Well, two things. The Soviet grasp was strong, but also coming to this as a historian of medicine, which is what I am first, right? Um, to look at the way that the older, that the roots of medicine in, from the 19th century and earlier impact on the development of dis, dis, the medicalization of disability is something that is very common. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of interesting to see the way that plays out both in these using these different axes, right? History of medicine and then the Soviet bloc and the way that the production of medical knowledge was shaped by both of them, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it's different from Western Europe, absolutely. Um, but as I find, there's there's really a lot of very surprising surprising to me overlap between in the experience of countries who were much closer to the West than what I'm used to, right? My guest also mentioned some of the region-specific challenges that historians of disability face when studying Eastern Europe. Professor Strodowska explained how there were much fewer sources from disabled communities themselves in Poland as compared with in the United States. It is so pleasant and peaceful and easy to do research on uh, deafness and disability in, uh, in the United States uh, because um, the archives are full. Uh, the scholarship is so rich and um, you just dive into into these concepts and theories um, and uh, it is much much easier to basically do research uh, than to do it in Poland uh, for example because uh, of the scarcity of the sources. For Professor Bernstein the challenge isn't so much the number of sources but rather how they're organized within the Russian archives. Part of the reason that this book has taken a really long time to get done is that my research has been done in two week periods. And if you've ever worked in the archives in, in Russia, it's it's not like working in the archives in the United States where everything is you know digitized and you can get access to stuff really easily. So it's taken a lot of two week trips um, to get all of the, the matter uh, all of the documents that I needed to get this book done. Professor Strodowska also identified several challenges that scholars from Eastern Europe face in the publication and dissemination stage of their research. We need to do it in English. That's the other thing. Uh, we read our research in, uh, in English in, uh, um, 
in journals that are uh, published in the United States or in UK. Uh, so it is this quite tricky situation uh, how to build this network um, effectively. Meanwhile, Professor Galmarini emphasized that the war in Ukraine has had a profound impact on how historians of disability in Eastern Europe are doing research. As the war has been going on for one year at this point, um, no scholar is going to Russia, there is no exchange, uh, uh, there is a, uh, an isolation that is almost Stalinist uh, in many respects, although there is no official prohibition to the entry of foreigners into Russia, de facto, um, but the fact that there is no um, that the fact that there is no exchange right now, and there is a war going on, um, that might slow down the presence of scholars who self-identify as disabled in the field, mm -hmm. uh, or or they might very be there and do their work, uh, but we don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We are not communicating. We are not exchanging, and I'm talking specifically about Russia as my uh, as my area of focus. Now that we've heard about the state of the field generally, it's time to take a look at some examples of the research being done. Here is Professor Bukur discussing her book on disability history in interwar Romania. I um, was doing a project about veterans and the Veterans Administration in Romania after the First World War. I discovered um, kind of a treasure trove of um, archival materials about what the Veterans Administration tried to do for veterans. And in those thousands of pages of material, um, the most interesting things that I found were um, letters from disabled veterans writing about the inadequacy of the programs that had been set up to serve them. And it gave me a window into, I mean, the thing that I've always been interested in, uh, in general, is how people who are marginalized, and before I worked on eugenics, I worked on the peasant population, on women in the interwar period, um, how these populations understand power relations, how they um, are able or not to intercede on their own behalf or on behalf of others just like them to try to shake up the, the system, let's say, and, and to um, access the kind of state um, benefits that are promised to them. And so this was kind of a perfect example of how legislation that was very generous, in fact, the legislation that was passed in 1920 in Romania was incredibly, um, uh, on paper, uh, generous uh, by comparison to other states that fought in World War One, like France was their um, main uh, inspiration. But you know, you look at Germany. Germany had an incredible um, set of um, policies that they passed and benefits. Romania, on paper, was giving uh, veterans not just political power, right? So all men received the vote but also that veterans would be the first to be uh, given land after the land reform. So a lot of economic power, right? Mm -hmm. Pensions, support for their children, free education, uh, free healthcare, free, free um, uh, legal assistance, uh, free travel on trains, mm -hmm. uh, free access to wood. I mean, I could go down the line of these like amazing things mm -hmm. that only this category of citizens, disabled veterans had access to. 
So all of a sudden, you know, and how large is this population? Well, on paper, 200,000, but actually I think it's much larger and I can say why. Um, so it's a, it's a significant percentage of the total population. Also, people who lived pretty much everywhere and especially in rural areas, 85% of the population lived in the rural areas at that time. So thinking through sort of like, what does it mean for somebody who lives in a village, you know, in the middle of Nowheresville, Romania, right? To be writing a message to the central government, explaining their own understanding of disabilities, um, you, know, you know, benefits and how the local government and their neighbors are discriminated against them was powerful yeah right? so here are people who are, are fully understand their rights um who are frustrated who have been told repeatedly that like your suffering and your sacrifices and your heroism have created this romania doubled in size after world war so like this incredible political and territorial gain and you are entitled because of your heroism to a b c d e f g and here you are trying to assert those rights and you were being turned down or worse. Um, so some of the things that I found out was that, for instance, in order to get, and this is kind of the medical um, framework for disability access, right, and, and, and benefits. Uh, doctors were the gatekeepers for, for all these benefits, right? In order for you to claim the status of disabled veteran, you had to go before a commission. And the legislation and then the policies establish like levels of disability, right? Mm -hmm. So I started getting into like, you know, how do doctors define disability? Yeah. Um, what's in and what's out, right? And so once you start thinking about this kind of what's in and what's out, you realize that there's a lot more that's out than yeah. there's in. Um, and so that's kind of how I got to it. I worked, my first book was on eugenics and, you know, I'm doing my mea culpa. I, in the early 1990s, when I was working on eugenics, um, and because literally like nobody else was working on eugenics, uh, I mean, the history of eugenics, uh, in Eastern Europe, you know, I didn't have much of a sort of like could have followed. So I was interested in gender issues and I was really interested in the way in which the reproductive, um, potential. Uh, was defined, framed, controlled, limited um, in terms of gender relations, right? Of course, that itself um, is connected to how able-bodiedness and disability are defined. I just was not seeing it then. And so what I'm doing now is I'm actually looking at the stuff that I did research on and things that I wrote um, in the in 90s and revisiting it in terms of thinking about how, you know, heteronormativity, for instance, and the ability to reproduce are framed as a kind of the norm and the normal and any kind of other performance of gender roles. Um, and that includes men's performance, not just women, right? Um, is then cast as um, deviant yeah. and degenerate and therefore imbricated with the kind of larger picture of how eugenicists think about health, um, what it is to be a useful human in the larger community in which you live and how then able-bodiedness and disability are framed as very much kind of having to do with an intergenerational responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I, I started to recognize more and more how um, the values the discourses that undergird 
how disability is defined for veterans. It really is on a continuum for how these biopolitical ideas about citizenship are framed and sort of what the new normal becomes in terms of um, who's marginalized, who's um, worthwhile, right? The, 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 the state's um, efforts and who is deemed a, a burden or somebody who absolutely needs to be isolated and prevented from reproducing. So I'm now kind of rewriting my, my own historical research, but um, tending to um, the complexity of how this concept of the normal able-bodiedness and disability are connected to each other. Professor Bernstein's first book in disability history is also about war veterans, but in this case, in the Soviet Union after the Second World War. The book is about how the state managed the mass disabling of the Red Army. And the way that they managed it was mostly through erasure, disappearing them, okay? So, oh, the title of the book is um, Missing in Action, Erasing Disability from the Great Patriotic War. And so my book is about the various different programs of action to erase this group of people. And so there are three different programs that I focus on in the, in the book. The first is just removing them from representations of the war. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's, that happened. Like if you looked at, if you've ever seen these amazing photographs of Vic, the Victory Day Parade on Red Square, it is, I mean, it's all, it's, it's, organized and rehearsed to a, to an inch of its death, right? And it's mm -hmm. filled with beautiful young men, men, all holding weapons and parading. And there was, of course, the column on top of uh, uh, Lenin's tomb and the review stands and throwing the Nazi flags at the feet of, St of Stalin and all that sort of stuff. It's really beautiful. Um, and a great deal of effort went into planning that parade. Um, and in the orders of the parade, it says who is allowed to and who cannot participate in this parade, the celebration. So the shocking, the two groups that are not participating are women. And of course, we know that many women serve at the front, not only in support positions, but in combat yeah. um, and disabled men. So they were gone from this mass showing of um, of the victory over the Nazis. They're not there. So the first policy agenda I look at is just basically erasing them, erasing their presence from representations of the war. And so if you look at posters, propaganda, we're all familiar with those fabulous wartime propaganda posters. There are no disabled men in any of them. You might find Russian soldiers with a little bandage around their head. Classic. There may even be a little bit of blood showing. Classic, right? But mm -hmm. you don't see disabled people. They are gone from the representation of war. Another important moment in that, and this is something, I just found this document uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, in January 1945, there was uh, a, a command uh, that was sent out to everybody in sector V of the KGB. At that point, it's the NKGB. V was the perlustration sector. They were the censors. And it was sent out not only to domestic censors, but also all of the military censors. 
Okay. Where they were informed that, you know, of course, everybody's letters are being open as, you know, pro forma, right? If they were to find any images of soldiers with disabilities, severe disabilities, including amputations, burnt faces, or, or mangled faces, or um, men who are blind, the images were to be removed because, and this is what the order says, they could be used by our enemies, right? So with that and the parade, that's kind of the beginning of my book, talking about you know how this the erasure happens at the level of representations. The second section of the book, the documentation section, is where we move from the from the representational to the pragmatic. And here the focus is on an institution called FTEC, Vrachevna Trudovaya Expertnaya Komisia, which translates as Medical uh, Labor Expert Commission. These were all of the policy related to uh, disabled soldiers once they got out of the hospital was uh, um, uh, formulated by the, the ministry and later the, the commissary and then ministry of social welfare. Um, and so these were these, they were these medical organizations in the commissariat of social welfare, which was run by bureaucrats. None of the leaders were physicians. Um, and um, basically this was the commission that would determine whether or not you were indeed a war invalid whether you deserve that title and with it a pension. Yeah, anybody who works in the Balkans, anybody who works in Eastern Europe is very familiar with this sort of thing because it was part of the Soviet model that really got transferred. And so the second part focuses on uh, how tech, these committees, uh, contributed to the erasure of these men from the war, from the memory of the war. And they do that basically by redefining their disabilities out of existence. So for instance, you know, a, a category, there were three categories. Um, the first was for somebody who is so impaired that not only can he not work, and again, I'm using he very specifically here, he could not work, but he needed uh, help. He needed assistance to live. Uh, category two initially was for guys who couldn't work, but could take care of themselves. And category three was for um, guys who could take care of themselves, could work, but not at the same profession or pay rate as they had before. So you're talking about men who are working, but they're gonna be paid much less, doing much crappier work for the most part. Yeah. Um, and, and then there were those who, even though missing a leg, missing two legs, whatever it is, if they could hold on this, down the same job they had before, they were not officially disabled and got nothing. So what happens during and after the war is you have these tech committees gradually moving these guys through the categories, right? And then they would change the definition of the different categories. So that category two, which was, you know, can't work, can take care of himself, became can work, but maybe not regular hours, maybe in lighter conditions and with less pay, right? And then category three would basically be, you're doing fine, you know, you know, once your injuries heal, uh, 
then you'd be moved off and you'd be recategorized as not an invalid. Bureaucratically, it's erasing them by, by producing fewer and fewer and fewer numbers of these people who, who uh, qualify for these categories. And then as more and more of them are not in these categories, the state can say, look, you know, look, look how good we did, right? Look how well we did. Mm -hmm. um, 80, 90% of all disabled veterans are working now. So that's the second pro policy agenda. The third involves hiding their disabilities. And there are two ways that they did this. One was through prosthetics. Um, and that happened very poorly. The prosthetics, the, the industry was a disaster. Um, and even particular kinds of prosthetics devices, I've written about this one arm actually that won the Stalin prize because it was gonna be the answer to getting all of these amputees back to work. Um, they were not surprising for any of us to know anything about the history of technology in the Soviet Union. They were crap, they fell apart. It was almost impossible to get them because you had to go and stand in six different lines. And I have stories of guys missing three limbs who were forced to come back three different times and three different processes, which each took several different visits to get one particular limb and lines and fittings and going back into lines and all that sort of stuff. It was a failure. It was a global failure. Um, and it was one of the few places actually that the state allowed criticism. Hmm. So you would find tons of articles in the paper saying, you know, what a shame, you know, this is an embarrassment before our heroes, our war, you know, our war heroes and the disabled and, um, but that really didn't change much. So that was the one, the one agenda on the, on the side of the body. And the second was because there were so many uh, war veterans who were too impaired to take care of, care of themselves and who had nobody who would support them, who could support them, family member. Um, they set up this series of invalid homes. Um, and there was this special kind of invalid home called the, um, the, uh, uh, the internat, the Trudavoy Invalidni Internat. These were these special homes that were set up specifically for uh, disabled veterans. Like there were other homes for people with disabilities. Um, these were specifically for disabled veterans uh, in ranks one and two. So that third rank, they were not, they were not qualified to, to live in one of these. And the point of these homes was to, to, to help them learn a trade, get some sort of job. And that was also a disaster for a number of reasons. First, the money, the, the state was broke. It was very difficult to find qualified personnel or they were incredibly corrupt and corruption was everywhere during and after the war. And so staffing them was very difficult. A lot of guys didn't want to live there because of the surveillance aspect of it. Didn't want to live there or they wanted a drink. They didn't want to be told, you know, what to do and what time to be in and all that sort of stuff. But again, it was not as simple as saying they were all rounded up over the course of a night and forcibly brought there. Many of them asked to go. They did not want to return to their families because they didn't want to be a burden on their families who already had too many mouths to, to, um, to feed. So goes a lot of the way 
towards explaining why disability is still something that, you know, is hush-hush, is not really talked about by polite people today in Russian society. Now let's move to Poland in the late 20th century to hear about Professor Strodowska's current book project. Right now I'm, I'm doing uh, research on uh, amateur uh, filmmakers, deaf filmmakers in Poland and in Eastern Europe. And again, um, um, that's the movement uh, that, that I discovered um, in relation to United States, where deaf people started using cinematography very early on to, to uh, re record uh, sign language, but also to um, record the everyday life of, uh, of their community. And I had this feeling that uh, if uh, so many people, deaf people in United States used um, film and cinematic uh, technologies, uh, probably something similar happened in Poland. Uh, but I, it, it was not that easy to, um, to find a proof for, for that um, because again, uh, the uh, American deaf films are in the Library of Congress. There are online uh, at Gallaudet University, there, there is a collection. Um, and I couldn't find similar sources for Poland. And at that time, I was doing research for my book that eventually didn't um, uh, end up in the book. But I was talking with um, Polish deaf uh, people. And I started asking them if they can remember if someone had a camera or was doing a film. Uh, were making films and it turned out that very many deaf people were doing this mm. but there's no trace of this uh, artistic and cultural practice of, of doing films um, in in the sources so um, uh, so so that's once again the very same uh, problem of of uh, on one hand of of sources uh, like institutional sources like who's buying the cameras if uh, the polish association of the deaf was supporting uh, this this movement um so that's one thing uh, but on, on the other hand there are not so many films left mm. and I think the problem is that neither institutions nor deaf people uh, recognize amateur filmmaking, but also I think other uh, forms of deaf art making as um, legitimate uh, heritage that is worth presenting. And that is super frustrating uh, when doing my research. Um, I just, a few days ago, I came back from the, a two-week uh, research trip, uh, field trip that I was uh, trying to access the archives in the local branches of Polish Association of the Deaf. And when I read, uh, reached one of them, there were no documents, basically none, um, because they were changing their location and they decided they couldn't move all the archives. So they just, they throw oh. it away. Oh. I did the same. I did the same. Uh, so, so the institution is not that much interested in these materials. 
So I decided to ground all the uh, project uh, in the interviews. I'm I'm looking for the filmmakers and uh, interview them. And I, when I ask them, where are your films? They are just, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the basement. I don't even have the equipment to uh, to watch them because they were uh, like uh, eight uh, millimeters or 16 millimeters films. So, um, and they say, well, right now I have my smartphone and I use it. So I, I don't even think about the old equipment. So, so these films and this like art forms are not considered worth preserving neither by the like institutions nor by uh, by the deaf people so that's a bit uh, that's a big um, problem on one hand but um, well also something that forces you to look for the this knowledge uh, in a different way now here's professor gelmarini talking about her upcoming book which will be published in winter 2023. So it's entitled Ambassadors of Social Progress, um, a history of international blind activism in the Cold War. What the book um, discusses is uh, uh, the international, the history of international blind activism from an Eastern perspective. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really interested in this book uh, is uh, to uh, critically discuss, uh, uh, critically analyze uh, uh, the contributions uh, of socialist uh, activists uh, to the blind international movement. And when I researched this book, I uh, was very surprised uh, to discover that at a certain point in the 20th century, uh, Eastern European and Russian blind activists were considered uh, embodiments of social progress by their counterparts uh, in uh, uh, the Western world. Hmm. And there are several reasons for that. Um, so let me give you a bit of a, of a chronology. Uh, the blind international movement kicked off in the 1920s uh, and had uh, a moment of uh, um, intensity and uh, glory, if you want, uh, in uh, really the late 1920s, early 1930s. And then with the outbreak of World War II, uh, it, uh, um, it almost died. Uh, it was not possible to meet internationally. It was not possible to travel. Um, there were all sorts of economic reasons uh, uh, that uh, didn't help, uh, didn't support uh, the development of the international blind movement. And then the movement uh, started again after World War II, but at that point in a very different geopolitical context. Um, when Western activists uh, uh, tried to uh, establish contacts uh, with uh, activists in the so-called Soviet bloc at the time, um, they were very curious about what was going on in the socialist countries. Um, they had uh, read that uh, in the socialist countries, the blind represented themselves in their organizations. Um, uh, they had read about the uh, social welfare systems uh, that uh, guaranteed uh, um, by constitutional constitutionally guaranteed uh, so many rights uh, to blind people. Uh, they have read about uh, the so-called uh, uh, workshops or industrial uh, um, production training uh, uh, workshops, product production training uh, um, enterprises where blind people were uh, received vocational training and employment. Uh, those are all the uh, fortes, if you want, uh, of uh, how 
Soviet disability politics projected itself abroad. So Western activists were very curious. And that was a time, I'm talking about the 1950s, 1960s, when in the West, uh, people with, with visual impairments were largely unemployed. Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, in many parts of the world, uh, uh, the colonial world or uh, um, decolonized world, as well as the so-called Western world, uh, they didn't have uh, uh, constitutionally guaranteed social rights. So in the eyes of these Western activists, uh, uh, in, in the eyes of some of them, the socialist model was at least interesting and appealing and fascinating, if not uh, uh, plainly progressive. Mm -hmm. as many of them thought at the time. So in, in the book, I talk about the long history of the international disability movement from the 1920s to um, the early 1990s, uh, with a particular focus of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, when the debate, the interaction, the exchange of ideas between the East and the West was really intense and really productive mm -hmm. for both sides. Uh, there was an exchange of technologies, of ideas, uh, approaches, uh, uh, conceptualizations of disability um, in all sorts of areas from education, uh, employment, uh, uh, rights, uh, um, from a medical point of view, um, technological point of view, uh, from the point of view of braille printing and writing, um, yeah. you just name it. Um, these activists... Uh, were eager to know what their colleagues were doing in the rest of the world. They were eager to collaborate because the resources were limited. Okay. Now, this might sound it's uh, uh, it's all good and great, right? Um, in reality, there was a, a darker side to the story. Uh, the fact that uh, um, the socialist activists were not simply advocates for their constituencies, but there were also um, diplomats and hmm. they were doing the work of their governments. I see. So when they went, when they went abroad, uh, they had two main tasks. One, first and foremost, to advertise the greatness of uh, socialism, of the Soviet Union in particular, uh, and the Soviet uh, uh, model of re-educating, uh, uh, retraining, and employing people with disabilities. That was the task number one. There was no admission of uh, flaws. There was, of course, uh, uh, no. Everything was great in socialism. That's what what these socialists were. These uh, uh, activists, as diplomats, were supposed to tell the world. The second task was to learn. And this is very much in line with uh, Cold War dynamics, uh, whereby the Soviet Union in particular, but all other Eastern European countries too, were asked to um, catch up and overcome, right? Uh, so learn from the West in order to surpass the West, to become greater. Uh, in uh, more progressive in all sorts of fields, uh, uh, military, economic, uh, um, scientific, and in disability too. So there were these two sides. Uh, and what I claim in this book is that socially, socialist activists wore two hats as advocates, disability advocates, and they were uh, personally committed to learn as much as they could, uh, to collaborate as much as they could. But they were also cultural diplomats. 
and they were uh, you know doing uh, uh, state work whenever they met uh, uh, foreign uh, disability advocates. Finally, I asked my guests what advice they'd give to a student or young scholar who is interested in the history of disability in Eastern Europe. Here's what Professor Bukur said. You absolutely have to learn the language of the place that you are studying to a level of uh, knowledge that will enable you to understand when people are talking to you about disability in that language, because the language that's being used in different countries differs um, and it's, it's really core to having a full appreciation. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of historian, like traditional historian in this regard, you know, spend time in the place that you want to research, get connected um, so that you can decide if um, the passion that you feel now is matched by a kind of core commitment to the hard, hard work without any guarantees for a job that comes after. I'm sorry to say, but there's very few jobs in East European anything, yeah. uh, let's work on Russia. Um, and um, I mean, from a kind of just purely job related perspective, I hope that disability history um, sees a growing interest in terms of how jobs are framed in the future for both research and teaching um, kind of places. Um, but it's a hope, it's yeah. not a reality. And, and so I think that the risk taking uh, has to be something that you understand front and center from the beginning. Now here's some guidance from Professor Galmarini. One piece of advice uh, that is not so um, granted would be to look at museums, not only at archives and libraries, uh, because uh, there were um, museums, so for the blind, I can speak for sure, um, but there were, um, Tiflological centers, right, and museums of uh, uh, Tiflopedagogy or Tiflology, um, museums of the blind uh, in all the capitals of Eastern Europe, from uh, uh, you know Ljubljana to Zagreb uh, to uh, you know Warsaw uh, to uh, Moscow. Um, of course, I'm Prague, uh, Budapest. Uh, um, so and. I did a lot of my own research in the Museum of the Russian Society of the Blind uh, uh, in Moscow and discovered that they have fantastic repositories um, hmm. that uh, uh, might be very interesting for a um, material history of disability, mm -hmm. but not only, but not only. Finally, here's some advice from Professor Strodowska. Well, to do it, <laughs> basically, okay. uh, um, I think there is so much to do in this field and it is so fascinating um, because of the differences. Uh, it is really interesting to, to, track, tra to track them and to see them. And I would recommend visiting uh, East Europe, uh, learning language uh, if possible and, and, doing, uh, and doing research. Um, because, um, well, uh, of course, there's um, that people uh, like in Poland, for example, scholars from different uh, areas, from different fields, 
into disability studies. And to some extent, I think we are following this American or um, Western European path of people from like critical uh, uh, cultural studies, from um, like English studies, from uh, um, sociology uh, coming into disability uh, studies and forming them. Uh, but definitely, uh, the more perspectives, the the better uh, it is. I think that when it comes to Poland, uh, there is a quite strong uh, the research on disability art is quite strong and very rapidly developing, especially in the case of theater and performance, uh, because it also gives tools for um, interpreting what is uh, happening in the public sphere mm -hmm. uh, with this performative attitude to uh, to protest, for example. Um, but there is also a, a big need, I think, for um, for research in more um, like um, in topics more associated to like social uh, elements, such as access to uh, to um, doctors or to uh, services like education, for example. Uh, so there is still uh, like in all areas, I think the the, the research is needed and welcome. Especially when someone comes from a different perspective, um, that that's uh, very valuable. The four scholars we heard from today are part of a growing community of disability historians who focus on Eastern Europe. A wave of recent publications also testifies to the expansion of the field. In 2023, Romanian disability historian Radu Harald Dinu and Swedish disability studies scholar Stefan Bengtsson co-edited a collection titled Disability and Labor in the 20th Century, Historical and Comparative Perspectives. This book features many chapters on disability history in various parts of Eastern Europe, including the Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. Following the pattern we discussed in this episode, the temporal focus of these chapters is still on the state socialist period in the 20th century. In fact, the quantity of scholarship on disability history in Eastern Europe has grown so much that in 2022, Radu Harald Dinu published a review article titled Recent Historiographical Trends in Scholarship on Disability and Socialism in Eastern Europe. This article is both an excellent summary of the existing scholarship and a testament to how much research has been done in the field over the last few years. In this episode, I've introduced you to just some of the scholars and research trends in Eastern European disability history. I hope that you learned something and that the field continues to flourish in the future. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.